You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And welcome to the Radioactive Show, produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne and heard nationally on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to the Radioactive Show, produced at my home on unceded Wurundjeri lands for 3CR in Nga, Melbourne. I pay my respects to elders past and present who hold the legitimate right to sovereignty and self-determination on this land and welcome all First Nations sovereign people listening today. This show is brought to you with the support of the ACE Nuclear Free Collective at Friends of the Earth. My name is AC. March 11, 2021, marks 10 years since the earthquake and tsunami that started the Fukushima disaster on the eastern coast of Japan. On today's show, we hear a detailed description of how that disaster unfolded by Dr. Philip White, who is an expert in nuclear power policy and was living in Japan at the time of the disaster. In the second part of the show, we hear from Kirsten Blair, a non-Indigenous woman who works as media officer for the Gunjami Aboriginal Corporation, which represents the rights of the Mirror people. She speaks about the Mirror connection to the the disaster in Fukushima, which was fuelled by uranium mined in Australia and is likely to have originated from Mirror land. These recordings are from the webinar, Australian Uranium Fuelled Fukushima 10 Years On, hosted by the ACE Nuclear Free Collective on March 9th. First, here is Dr. Philip White walking us through what happened. Let me just go through a little bit more detail about what actually happened on the, on the day of the earthquake itself. The uh, earthquake hit at 2.36, I think it was, in, in the afternoon. And the first tsunami wave came in um, about half past three, and that was only about four metres high. So the plant coped with that okay. But about or about eight minutes later, the second wave came, and that was over 15 metres high, and it breached all the barriers that they had in place. And a couple of minutes later, from due to the flooding, backup diesel generators had been knocked out. And, of course, the off-site power was already out because of the earthquake. And with the backup generators out, that means that the uh, Unit 1 um, at least had lost all power and the control room for Units 1 and 2. So six plant, there were six reactors on the site and one, two and three were operating at the time of the earthquake. Four, five and six were not operating. Five and six were a little bit further away. So one, two, three and four were all bunched in together. And... Units one and two were all controlled from the same control room and that control room had gone dark. So you can imagine trying to control nuclear power plants in the dark. About 6pm on that day, a couple of workers went up to the fourth floor and discovered that there were radiation readings off the scale. So clearly something was happening to the fuel in in the reactor. At uh, just after 7pm, the Prime Minister of the time, uh, Naoto Khan, declared a nuclear emergency. So let me now go into a little bit about the evacuation. So about 9pm, evacuation was ordered. This was ordered in a circle of three kilometres around the nuclear power plant. But that three kilometres was subsequently realised to be not enough. They had actually planned for five kilometres in the event of an emergency, Um, So the first three kilometres was within that range, 
But immediately 6 a.m. the following morning on the 12th, that's Saturday morning, they'd expanded it to 10 kilometres already. And that's before any of the plants had exploded. So the first one, unit one, explodes at 3.36 p.m. And the evacuation is extended to 20 kilometres in a concentric circle around that plant at about uh, half past six in the, in the evening. And that's where it stayed, basically for quite a long time, a 20 kilometres concentric circle, regardless of how the radiation was spreading. If you were within that circle, you got out. If you were between 20 and 30 kilometres, if I remember, you were told to stay indoors. But where the radiation was actually going, nobody knew. The evacuation itself was chaotic. You just imagine, you've just been hit by an earthquake. Roads have been damaged. Everybody's trying to get out all at once. Traffic congestion. The Futaba Hospital, Futaba is one of the towns in which this Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant is located. 4.5 kilometres away from the reactor, the Futaba Hospital had to be evacuated. Now, the hospital had a whole lot of people in there, old people, sick people, some on emergency support. They've lost power and they're in a radiation zone. 50 people died out of that from that hospital because of the because of the earthquake and also because of the fact that the radiation was there and they had to be evacuated. Um, now, there was actually a system that they had set up and it was for, for predicting how the radiation would spread. This was called SPEEDY for short, System for Prediction of Environment Emergency Dose Information, SPEEDY. They never used it. It was predicting that uh, how the radiation would spread. Had they used it, they probably would have um, been able to get a, a better picture of where they should evacuate people from. But this was um, considered to be not real, not real information. It's uh, just uh, modelling. So they decided not to use it. Well, whether that was a good decision or not, uh, I'm not necessarily one to judge. But I can say that... Um, as it turned out, the radiation did not spread in concentric, concentric circles. It spread particularly to the northwest. And you heard reference to Itate village, northwest, about 30, between 30, 40 kilometres away. Um, but that place was not evacuated at the time, even though that's where a large concentration of the radiation was going. OK, <clears throat> so we go back to the explosions themselves and the situation in the power plant. What do we do now? What has happened? What caused it? How much radia radiation is, is out there? How many more plants are going to blow up? Nobody knew the answer to these questions, but it was going through everybody's mind. So the fight to prevent more explosions and more melt meltdowns was, as you can imagine, chaotic. The people in the plant had not been prepared for this sort of thing. They'd never imagined this sort of thing could happen. Communication between the nuclear power station itself and TEPCO, Tokyo Electric Power Company's management and the government was confused and often it was garbled. The big fight was to find cooling water for the reactors, get water there and release the pressure that was building up inside the reactors from the fuel as it was melting down. But how are you going to get water there? You've got no pumps, no electricity. The question arose, should we use seawater or should we use fresh water? If you use seawater, the moment they pump seawater in there, 
the plants were going to be a write-off regardless of whether there was any damage in, internally before that. Seawater would corrode it. They'd never be able to dream of using those plants again. That actually was a consideration. There you have, you have a crisis, you have all sorts of potential terrible things happening, but there are people there who say, oh, no, 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 we can't put seawater in there. Let's go and find fresh water. But they didn't have fresh water, not enough of it anyway. But where are they going to get the seawater from anyway? How are they going to pump it up? They actually found they were, they were trying to pump up using fire trucks, they were pumping up um, water that had rushed in with the tsunami from pools that had collected there. Nothing prepared, it's not in the manual, but this is what they were doing, improvising. And they were trying to, un to release the pressure valves, pressure valves which required electricity to release, they were trying to release them manually. So suicide squad workers would go in, they'd get significant doses. They really thought this was probably the end for them. Not just the suicide squad, but everybody there on site, they thought that they were, their, their number was up. Now, there was actually a limit to how much dose they were allowed to take, but they were exceeding that already. And they actually lift, lifted the limit just to allow them to keep working. And just imagine they're doing this and at the same time, there's repeated aftershocks happening. And then there's all this radioactive rubble around the place from the explosions. So it was seriously considered, should we withdraw all the workers, just abandon the plants? This was seriously considered. And thanks to 50-odd people, workers, call them heroes who stayed behind, we got some, le some level of control, but by no means did it, could you say that the situation was controlled. Okay, so then a few days later, we have the hydrogen, ex hydrogen explosion at the third unit three, and then another day later on the 15th, four days after the uh, <coughs> earthquake, a large amount of radioactivity was released from the second unit. And then at about the same time, there was a hydrogen, hydrogen explosion in the fourth unit, the fourth unit, which wasn't operating at the time. But what that did was it exposed the spent fuel pool. Now, the spent fuel pool is the fuel that has been accumulating in that uh, nuclear power plant ever since it had started operating. So there were many, many times more radioactivity in that spent fuel pool than had already gone up in the other reactors combined. And so international attention, not just Japanese attention, turned to this spent fuel pool. And this is where I'm going to start saying how bad it could have got. So the United States actually was saying, look, that has evaporated. That fuel pool must have evaporated. There's no roof on it. How can it not have evaporated? And the US Embassy in Japan on March the 17th advised American citizens living within 80 kilometres of the Fukushima nuclear power plant to evacuate the area. So that was four times the distance that the Japanese government evacuation order had been given. And so there are a lot of people within Japan who were, call who were calling for an expansion of the ev evacuation zone, but actually that didn't happen. There was no expansion except Another month or so later, finally, 42 days after the earthquake, the evacuation zone was extended to include Itate off to the northwest, over 30 kilometres away. And I don't believe that they began evacuating till mid-May. So all those people in Itate had been exposed for that long. 
Now, it could have been much worse. It really, it's amazing that it wasn't. I talked about that Fukushima number four power plant um, spent fuel pool. The only reason why that water didn't evaporate off was because they'd been doing some maintenance work. And just during the maintenance period, there was a whole lot of water that was in the reactor well, which was could potentially flow into the spent fuel pool. But normally, in normal circumstances, that water wouldn't have been there. Now, that maintenance work was due to be finished uh, four days before the earthquake. However, the maintenance was delayed, so that water was still there. And instead of all the water being evaporated off, as it evaporated off, it was able to trickle in from this um, uh, reactor well. So that's just a miracle, really. And had that happened, the Japan Atomic Energy Commission's chairman was asked to do a review as to how much, how far you'd have to evacuate. And the conclusion he came to was that you'd have to evacuate an area with a radius of 170 kilometres, or even as much as 250 kilometres, which would have ended up including Tokyo. So there was genuine thought that they might have to evacuate Tokyo. The Tokyo wider, greater area is about 30 million or so people. That didn't happen, but it's a miracle that it didn't. That was Dr. Philip White talking about how close we came to a much worse disaster when the reactors at Fukushima went into meltdown in 2011. You're listening to The Radioactive Show. Produced for 3CR at my home in Nam, Melbourne, and broadcast across these stolen lands known as Australia through the Community Radio Network. Next, we hear from Kirsten Blair. Kirsten is a media officer with Gunjami Aboriginal Corporation, which represents the rights of the Mara people. The Mara are traditional owners of parts of Kakadu National Park, the Ranger and Jabaluka uranium deposits, and parts of Western Arman land in Australia's Northern Territory. She speaks here about the imposition of uranium mining on the Mirra people and the foreknowledge they had of the dangers of digging up uranium, not just on their country, but wherever it was used. Uh, the Mirra are the people for, for whom history came knocking in a very loud way. A lot of things have happened on Mirra country and particularly with relation to nuclear issues because on Mirra country are two very significant uranium deposits so Ranger and Jabaluka I'm sure people have heard of each of those the Ranger uranium mine was imposed on the Mirra uh, over 40 years ago and just at the start of this year on the 9th of January was the first day where Ranger uranium mine is no longer operating as a mine so we have come to the end of the uranium mining period in the Kakadu region which is incredibly significant something I could happily talk for longer than 15 minutes about. Uh, but just to note that, um, that 40 years ago, the government and industry were very confident that that was the beginning of what would be a very long-lived period of the uranium mining province of what they called the Alligator Rivers region. And in fact, there's been one mine on that site and that uh, has lasted for four decades, which is certainly not nothing. A lot of yellow cake has been shipped out from that spot and uh, we've seen really significant impacts from that not least the fact that uranium from Mira country was present at Fukushima so before I talk a little bit more about uh, the Mira's response to and relationship with that disaster I just wanted to 
lay out uh, some of the history bet- that exists because the Mira, Mira country and Japan actually have a relationship that goes back uh, to well before this accident. And um, in terms of the uh, re- relationship with relation to uranium, it begins really actually in the 1970s. And so um, in 1974, uh, Gough Whitlam was, as people would be aware, was Prime Minister at that time, and he made an agreement with the then Prime Minister of Japan, Tanaka, and said that uranium from Mira country would supply the nuclear reactors in Japan to provide electricity. So that was in 1974, which is four years, I'm, People, some people will be aware of this history, but it was four years before the agreement was signed with the traditional owners on country up in Kakadu, so or what was not yet then Kakadu was um, Mira country. So, in fact, the federal government's impetus to develop the Ranger Mine was to sell uranium to Japan, and there's footage and documentation of the meetings in which Aboriginal people who were living either in a very traditional way or certainly in quite rudimentary housing, where there was very minimal federal or um, Northern Territory money available for people's housing at that time. So people were often living without electricity, but they were being told and implored to support this uranium mine because people in Japan need electricity and that the source for that needs to come from your country. So there's always been these references to Japan with relation to uranium mining as far as the Miraz experience has been. So quite extraordinary. And there's, um, as I said, yeah, various documentation of that. And another aspect of that process when the um, when what I called the ranger negotiations, but in fact was the process of the mine being imposed on the mirror and their opposition being ignored and actually legislated against, uh, through that process, again, there was, I've just got a little clip that I'm going to share with you now because um, I just find it extraordinarily powerful. So um, Yvonne Margarula, who's the senior traditional owner of the mirror. Uh, Currently, her father was the senior traditional owner at the time of these negotiations. And we're very fortunate because there were some wonderful documentary makers who spent a lot of time up on Mirai Country through this period and have documented all kinds of aspects of it, including this wonderful footage. We got the sacred place up there. That's where we didn't like it. Just introduce it slightly more. Um, That's Toby Gongale, and he is speaking about one of the reasons why he didn't it doesn't want the mine to happen. This is a sacred site called Jibbi Jibbi, which is King Brown dreaming. And this actually overlooks what eventually became the Ranger Uranium Mine. And he, what he just said was, we've got a sacred place up there. That's why we don't like this. My father used to tell me, you know, the sacred place up there, you know, we've got a snake dreaming there. Uh, King Brown. Hey, you can see the painting up there, you know, very old, nearly a thousand years ago, but they nearly worn out. Uh, that's why we don't, we don't let anybody go in up there. The snake might come up and then they, you know, he's a big grand, or what they call it. <laughs> Sorry, you know, he might go all over, he might kill all, you know, all over the world. That's the, all the Aboriginal me, you know, reckon, everyone. Not, not me, but everyone, you know, from down, probably, all over the place. We did have that story, you know, if something go wrong with, now well, mine going to go ahead. Well, you might get a big rain or something, or something. 
as we as we reckon. So I hope it's. I know it's a bit hard to hear some of that, uh, some of those quotes, but hopefully you understood most of that. But really, what uh, Toby says there is that's a really important place, and what we've always said is if that's disturbed, something bad might happen. And Yvonne, this is the truth. On the tenth of March, two thousand and eleven, had a conversation with one of my colleagues, and it's actually recorded. Um, in which they spoke about that. They spoke about Toby talking about that and talking about the sacred power. The word for that is jung. And she spoke a lot about the jung and how powerful that is and how concerned she was about the fact that uranium from Mirar country was being shipped all over the world. And Mirar don't have any control over what happens to it, but they still feel a strong sense of responsibility for any impact that it might have. And the next morning, everybody woke up and found out what had happened in Japan. So in terms of those coincidences that uh, Philip was referencing, there's another really powerful one there. That's a conversation that it's not the first time Yvonne's had that conversation, but it was a really detailed and documented example of that conversation. So um, people were really conscious that this worry and concern that people had had from the outset was still real. And so that's one of the reasons why... um, Yvonne wrote a letter to the then Secretary General of the UN expressing her concern and sense of responsibility for the impacts that that disaster was having on the people in Japan. And it was, the letter was written before it was confirmed through Senate estimates uh, that it was Australian uranium in each of those reactors. But Yvonne was aware that there'd been uranium from Mirar country travelling to Japan for, for such a long time. The likelihood was really high. So uh, that letter was sent. There was a strong response to that from governments internationally. It's been translated into, I think, 15 languages. A lot, there's been a lot of interest and response to it, and there still is. And um, so the following 12 months' time – oh, sorry, that's before that happened. I've just got a little time frame here. Oh, yes, I was so happy to see um, – Mr. Hasegawa in Ayumi's clip because he also came to Mira country and um, we've just got, I've just got one picture here of Mr. Hasegawa meeting with Yvonne and also Mr. Hasegawa's wife. And some people would know um, Akira and also Tomo who are in this picture. So that, um, that was in 2011, uh, just not very long after the event actually. And so that was a really extraordinary and powerful moment. The first uh, person who'd come from the Fukushima area to Mira country. So everyone was able to express her sadness and regret that that had happened to their country. And it was really powerful. And actually everyone was mostly crying. And that's why there's only one photo. Uh, people would be aware, and his name's already come up, that um, Nato Khan visited Australia in 2014. And one of the places that he visited was Mira country. And I just wanted to share a couple of the wonderful pictures that document that visit. So here he is with the chairperson of Gunjaitme at that time, which is Annie Nagimara, Nagilmara, who is one of Yvonne's sisters. Um, and so she and Nato Khan were holding this really powerful banner and they had a great conversation about the significance of the connection between Mirar country and the uranium from Mirar country, that the impact it had had on Fukushima. And as many of you would have heard, uh, Nato Khan spoke so powerfully about the fact that the experience of the meltdown 
that that reactor really changed his sense of and relationship with the idea of nuclear power. And obviously it's outrageous that something as significant as that has to happen before people have those realisations. But the fact that he was willing to make that public statement was obviously really powerful. And here he is watching that clip that we watched before and um, learning that story about the the concern about the jung that was expressed well before any soil was turned at the ranger's site. And he then went up in a plane and flew over the site and saw the place where the uranium had come from that had that huge impact from Mirar country to his country. So extraordinary. And again, just moments where the power was so palpable and the, the connection was felt really strongly. Obviously, that is incredibly light touch on that content and there's heaps more to cover. I'm going to just, for less than one minute, talk very briefly about what's going on in Mirar country now because it's obviously relevant and significant. As I mentioned before, Ranger Mine has stopped producing yellow cake and the rehabilitation process is underway, which is obviously enormous. It's an open-cut uranium mining pit in a wet, tropic, wet dry tropical environment. The rehabilitation task is enormous and unknown. So that is something which Mirar and Gandhatmi are focusing on very strongly to ensure that no corners are cut and that that process is done as comprehensively as possible. At the same time, the rehabilitation of the cultural and social context is underway and the Mirar are stepping up to lead that process and have identified a series of objectives that they're working towards for the region beyond mining. So I just want to show you this beautiful celebratory picture of Yvonne and her sisters and some of the other senior Mirar women on the day that the native title handback of Jabiru happened. So that was a really significant step along that way. And here are some pictures of the wonderful Murrawoodi Gallery, which this building here, if anyone's been to Jabiru, this used to be the bakery in Jabiru. And so it used to be where the miners would come after work and get a pie. And that closed, that business closed when it was clear that the mine wasn't going to continue and it's been an empty building for a couple of years. Perfect place for an art centre. And so it's now become the art centre and it is stunning, stunningly beautiful. It's been fitted out absolutely gorgeously. You can see this mural, which has been painted by local artists and there's incredible works like this amazing marabou. And it is really symbolising the transition that the town is undergoing from a mining service town to a cultural centre and community hub for people who live locally as well as in, uh, the tourists to experience and really see that there's so much more to the region than somewhere to export uranium from, which the Mirror have always known. They've outlived this mining window, which really in the context of the 65,000 years that Mirror have lived on this country is a blink of an eye, 40 years. They've seen it off. They're in the process of seeing off the last of it and they're showing the world that they will take it in the direction that they want to see it go in. That was Kirsten Blair, who works for the Gunjami Aboriginal Corporation, speaking about the post-mining future for Mirar. Now the Ranger Mine has ceased operation. You're listening to The Radioactive Show. I'd like to thank Dr Philip White and Kirsten Blair for their extensive knowledge on the Fukushima disaster and the connection of that disaster to the Mirar people, who hold deep responsibility for the uranium taken from their lands without consent. That's it for today. You'll find the Radioactive Show podcast online at 3cr.org.au forward slash radioactive and you can get in touch by calling us at the 3CR office on 03 9419 8377. 
Thanks for listening, and here's to a nuclear-free future. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.